Amen. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. We'll be looking today in Exodus chapter 20. Looking at verses 1 through 3 today. Exodus chapter 20, 1 through 3. As we come to the book of Exodus this summer, we're going to be looking individually at the Ten Commandments. I can't think of uh, another uh, group of, of passages in our scripture that has influenced the Western world as much as these Ten Commandments. Uh, as we look today in our culture, we see many of these Ten Commandments have, have formed the very basis of our legal understanding. And as we come today, uh, most churches will tell you, I believe in the Ten Commandments. In fact, as we read the scripture, as we come to the book of Psalm, we read that David writes things like, I love the law of the Lord, and I meditate on it day and night. Indeed, uh, Psalm, first, uh, Psalm 1 says, uh, the, the, the righteous man, he doesn't walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And I would dare say that there probably isn't anybody in here who'd say, I, I, I hate the Ten Commandments. No, I'd say most of us would say, no, we love the Ten Commandments. But really, I think part of the reason why we delight in them and we love them may be because we don't understand their full implications. Maybe it's because we don't understand what they're calling us to do. And so this summer, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we want to examine them in light of the heart of the gospel. We want to understand what the Lord is telling us about himself, what he's revealing about us, and what he wants us to know in Christ. And so we will begin looking today with the first commandment. Here in Exodus chapter 20, we see pretty simply that God commands, that God commanded the Israelites to worship him alone. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And we see throughout the Bible that the Bible commands us today to worship God alone. And so today we want to understand what does this commandment reveal to us? What does this commandment call us to do today? How does this commandment shape our everyday life? Why is it commandment number one? As we look at Exodus 20, we begin reading in verse one and we read this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We know that the word of God is living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between soul and spirit of joints and marrow, even dividing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So before we come to this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray today as we examine your law that you would help us to see uh, who you are, what you call us to do, and, and how we can follow Christ knowing uh, what you have done for us. We pray today uh, that your word would do its work in our church, that you would strengthen us, that you would save today, uh, that you would help us today as we seek to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what does this passage reveal about us today? Many of you can quote this verse, you shall have no other gods before me. It seems pretty straightforward, but let's kind of set the context. You remember the story of Israel. You remember uh, the person Abram was, uh, he was, he was living and uh, kind of minding his own business in the, in the city of Ur. And uh, 
God appears to him and says, Abram, go to a land that I will show you and I will make you a people and I will bless you and I will expand, uh, I will expand your, your family and give you a land and give you a hope and I will be your God and you will be my people. And so Abram went. And we, we know there's some, uh, there's some stories about Abram here and there and ultimately God makes a covenant with him, changes his name to Abraham and Abraham, at the old age, ripe old age of 100 years old, he all of a sudden has a child. But, but God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. And so Abram goes to sacrifice the child of promise. And we know the story. At the last minute, God comes and says, Abraham, you have, show, Abraham, you have shown me that, that you don't even hold your own firstborn son above me. Spare the child's life. And then the son of promise has children, and they have children. All of a sudden, you have the tribes of Israel. And we know the story of the tribes of Israel. It starts off pretty simple when the 12 sons of Israel uh, ship off Joseph down to Egypt, and God is with Joseph, and Joseph rises up to be the second in command of all of Egypt. And during a famine, he saves the entire world by storing up food. He brings his family in. He forgives them and makes them a place there in Egypt. But then the book of Exodus begins with a sobering sentence. There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And this Pharaoh looked out to the Israelites and said, these people are numerous. And if an enemy comes in and tries to conquer us and they side with our enemies, we are no more. Before this people realize how strong they are, we need to imprison them and enslave them. And this is exactly what Pharaoh does. And Pharaoh uh, persecutes the people of God until they cry out to God and God hears their voice and God sends them a rescuer, Moses, to stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And God, with a strong, uh, a, a strong arm, removes his people from Egypt. With great signs and wonders, he, he brings them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, and now we have a wandering people in the wilderness. But did God save these people from Egypt just to leave them in the wilderness? No, he called them out of slavery under his law. And here we come to the point where God is about to reveal himself to them, to give them his law. What does this law mean? Well, as we talked about uh, last Sunday night, this law is a, is a revelation of who God is. Uh, the very character of God is seen in the law. And it, and it makes a covenant with the people of, if you follow this law, you will live. If you break this law, you will die. And so we come to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. And here Moses has the first words of the Lord. And what are these words? What does this command reveal to us today? The first thing that this command reveals to us today is that God alone is worthy of our worship. That God alone is worthy of our worship. Hence the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. Only God can be God. And we see several uh, aspects of this in verse 20 and in verse 19. In fact, if you look in verse 19, chapter 19, uh, you will see uh, in verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. God is showing his might and his power. In fact, everything that's happened in Exodus before this, God has been showing the people that he is a God of wonders. God is the one who controls the weather. God is the one who controls the insects and the frogs. God is the one who controls even darkness, and God has the ability to take life. 
how these were shown in the plagues of Egypt. Not only that, but God has the ability to split the Red Sea and bring the people across safely. God can bring forth water from stones, and God has called this people for a purpose. Where were the gods of Egypt? Where were the gods of all the other Near Eastern areas? The gods of Egypt could not protect their king from the king. And here, God is reminding the people of, 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 of Israel, there is no other God who is worthy of worship. And he shows them through his might and his power. Not only that, but we see that this is a God who speaks. In Exodus verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, And God spoke all these words. This is a God who speaks. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament narratives, one of the main differentiating factors between our God, the Most High, and an idol is that idols don't speak. I love Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, it says, All the nations have come around and they've said to Israel, Where is your God? And Israel's response is, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. You serve a God that has a mouth but does not speak. You serve a God who has ears, but he doesn't hear. You serve a God that has feet, but he can't go anywhere. And those who make him and worship him become like him. So we serve a God who speaks, who reveals to us, who, who tells us who he is and demands on us something. This is a God who reveals himself to us. And this in itself is, very, is, is grace upon grace. God does not, is not required to tell us who he is. And yet... Our God speaks. Our God is a God of speaking. There's a reason that anywhere you go in the world and you find a group of Christian people, that we are a literate people. That, that we, have a, we are people of a book. What is this book before us? This book before us is the very words of God that he speaks, that he reveals, and that he cares. Part of this shows that he alone is worthy of worship. No other God speaks. Not only that, but he tells us who he is, identifies himself in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord. If you look at that word, you'll see it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the English rendering of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the, the covenant name of God. God pledging himself to a people. This isn't just generic God. This is our God. He is the one who makes covenant with us, who cares for us, who has a personal relationship with us. This is not a, a taskmaster. This is not a tyrant. This is a loving, gracious God, the Lord, your God, your God. The fact that God is willing to humble himself to be called our God. This makes him worthy of worship. It's not just, though, we see in all these things in chapter 19 and all through the beginning of Exodus, the fact that he speaks, the fact that he is the Lord your God, all these things tell us who God is. And the very nature of God demands that he is worthy of worship. And we believe this today. That's why we're here. We believe that God is worthy of all of our worship simply because of who he is. But we also see that it's not just who he is, but it's also what he has done. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The God who brought you out of the house of slavery. We gather together to worship a God because he is holy, because he is good, because he is gracious, because he is slow to anger, because of all of these attributes that we are able to lift up to him. He is worthy to, to be praised simply because he exists. But God has done so much more for us. 
God had done, has, has done so much more for the Israelites. He brought them out of slavery. He brought them out of the, the house of Egypt. Instead, uh, He established them in their land. This is a God who actually works on our behalf. And here we are. We are in the New Testament, right? We, we live in, in New Testament times. We understand that God has not just brought us out of slavery, but He has brought us out of sin. That God has brought us out of sin. He has dealt with the great enemy of death. He has made us his people. And so he is worthy of worship. What other God can do that? Is there another God that can pay for your sins? Is there another God who can, who can take care of you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Is there another God who hears when you pray? Is there another God who acts on your behalf? Exodus, the first commandment here in chapter 3 reminds us there is no other God who cares for us, who loves us, who is perfect and powerful, who is almighty. There is no other God who can save. Therefore, God tells us, you shall have no other God before me. The first thing that this command reveals to us is that God alone is worthy of our worship. The second thing that this command reminds us today is that mankind is inclined to idolatry. There are a few things that we tell our children, right? We tell our children. In fact, uh, may, many of you, when you were about to have a, a child, your first child, you went out to Walmart and you bought those little uh, frustrating plastic things and you put them in the sockets, right? Why'd you do that? Because little kids are inclined to stick things in sockets that ought not be there, right? Why? We just have a natural curiosity to put our finger in the socket or to put a, a, a knife in the socket. And we know that's dangerous, so we're going to go out of our way to prevent that. And we tell our children, don't run in the road. Why? Because there's something alluring about the road, right? When a ball goes down there, we think, well, we can go down there. We tell our children, don't go deep off in the woods by yourself. Why? Because there's something about that that we are just inclined to do these things. We don't have to tell our kids not to do things they don't want to do, right? To your kids, don't you dare go to the pantry and eat all the green beans. Nobody does that. Why? Because... Well, kids just aren't inclined to go to the, the pantry and eat all their good vegetables, right? No, we have other inclinations. And so here, God has given us a command, and it's a command that we have to take seriously because you and I are inclined to idolatry. You and I are inclined to worship things that are not God. The, the great Protestant reformer John Calvin says that the, uh, the heart of man is a perpetual idol factory. We're always creating idols. We're pumping them out, and we're, we're worshiping them when we ought not be. One of our great hymns says it this way, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we know this. We feel this in ourselves. We wake up Monday. Sometimes we don't think about God. We think about the other things in our life that are drawing us away. And it's very easy for us to worship because we are worshipful creatures. We are creatures who were made to worship, and so we're going to find something to worship. God tells us that worshiping anything but Him leads to destruction. So we find out that we're, we're inclined to idolatry. No other gods? Why? Why, God? Why can't we worship other gods? We'll worship you too. Well, we can't worship other gods because all of our gods lead to destruction. Anything, even the good things in your life that you raise to the point of being an idol, those things crack under the pressure of being God. How often have we seen uh, relationships between uh, parents and children break because there are unrealistic expectations on either one of those? Our children are good gifts from the Lord, but they are not God and they cannot be. 
Our parents, our friends, our family, they are good gifts from the Lord, but they are not God and they can never be. God tells us, have no other gods before me. Have no other gods in my presence. Have no other gods that, you would, that would rival me because I have no rival and those things cannot save. And those things, if you worship them, will lead to your destruction. So how do we identify our idols? If God tells us that we are prone to idolatry, if we know it to be true, if deep down, if we were honest with ourselves, if we understand that we are tempted to worship something else, how do we identify that? Because the worst thing that you want to do is accidentally slip into idolatry and not realize it. How easy is it for us to do that? So a simple way to identify your idols is just two questions. What do you love about other things? And what do you trust above all other things? What do you love above all other things? What do you trust above all other things? If you love something, anything other than God, and it is the reason why you live, you can be sure that that's an idol. If you trust something above all other things, even above God, then you can be sure that is an idol. And you and I, we, we, we are good at creating idols. We, we have idols that we create in our life. Sometimes our idols are money. Sometimes our idols are our family. Sometimes our idols are our jobs. Sometimes our idols are politics. Oh, man, the, it's not 2020 yet, but y'all, it's getting there. And we, we, think, we think the fires are cooled right now. They're not, right? If you time to turn on the TV, it's politics all day long. From both sides. You're going to hear the idolatry of this is the only way we can be saved. No, Jesus is the only one who saves. And sometimes we're tempted to put idolatry out of our politics, out of our personal reputation. We, we make idol, idols of our, of our hobbies. What are you making an idol of? Another good question for us is not necessarily uh, who, what am I loving above all else or what am I trusting above all else, but what would other people say you love and trust above all else? Every one of you have people that watch you, that look up to you. You have children or grandchildren, you have friends, you have family, and they look to you. What would they say your idol is? I fear that our greatest, our greatest problem is not that we're teaching our children that there is another God. None of us are sitting down at night and saying, how many gods are there? Yes, there's ten. No, we're not doing that, right? We're not openly telling our children that there are other gods, but practically, we're showing them that Baal is God. We're showing them that politics is God. We're showing them that is God. We're showing them that money is God by the way that we live every day. And what the law of God reminds us is that this is something that you and I, all of us fail at. All of us create gods. In fact, I love the way, I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis, in his, in his uh, own autobiography of the death of his wife, A Grief Observed, he says that for me, my image of God I create on, an ali- on, a, on a daily basis is a house of cards. And God has to come along on a daily basis and tear it down because it is not right. And how often do you, you and I do that? We, we create a house of cards and, and this is our image of God or our view of God or this is our own personal God. And God who loves us more than anything is going to come and knock those things down and remind us that no, He is who He says He is. And there is no other. So what am I loving? What am I trusting above all else? 
The first thing that this command reveals to us is that God alone is worthy of worship. The second thing that this command reveals about us is that we are inclined to idolatry. And the third and one of the most important things that this command reveals to us is that only in Jesus can we flee idolatry and trust in God. There is no one in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, that can say, I have never worshipped something other than God. There is no one in this room that can say, I have always worshipped God rightly, perfectly. In fact, what we find out in the New Testament, we can't come to the Old Testament, we can't come to the Ten Commandments and preach them as if we're Jewish. We're not. We have a New Testament. We have a New Covenant. We have a Jesus. We have a Messiah. And so we must interpret the Old Testament based on this New Testament. And what we find out is that in order to love God supremely, we must love Him through the person of His Son. If we love God the Father all day long, we hate God the Son, then we do not love God. We can say that we are worshiping God rightly, but if we're not worshiping Him in faith, faith in the Son of God who gave Himself for us, who lived a perfect life, who did everything well, if we're not worshiping Him through Jesus, then we're committing idolatry. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only one who lived perfectly. For 33 years, He worshiped His Father alone. He had no other gods that He put before God Almighty. Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. In John chapter 1, John tells us that uh, Moses revealed to us the law, and in Jesus we see grace upon grace that Jesus reveals to us. No one has seen God, but in Jesus we see Him. Jesus reveals to us this wonderful God of the mountain. In fact, in Jesus, God comes off the mountain and walks among us. He reminds us why there is no other God. He reminds us that Jesus alone can save, that God alone brings salvation. In fact, Jesus is the one that brings us into God's presence. And in Exodus chapter 19, all the people of God are at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and there are peals of lightning and roars of thunder, and they tell Moses, please tell God to stop. He's going to kill us. They are frightened and they are trembling. They know that they cannot approach the mountain. In fact, Moses tells him, don't even let your animals go near the mountain because as soon as they touch it, they will die because God is perfectly holy. And yet, in Jesus, in Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, the veil is torn and you and I are ushered into the presence of our almighty God. We are brought in. We are brought in as honored guests. When we trust in Jesus, we are brought in and God looks not on our sin, but he looks at our righteousness in Jesus. Jesus' obedience secures our obedience. Have you worshipped another god? Have you created an idol? The answer for all of us is yes. And yet there will be no idol worshippers in heaven. So how, how can we be in heaven? We can only be in heaven by trusting in Jesus who has never worshipped an idol. We can only be in heaven if Jesus has taken our sins to the cross and given us his righteousness. And praise God, in the New Testament, we are reminded that that's exactly why Jesus came, to substitute his life for ours. We are reminded by the Ten Commandments, this first commandment, that Jesus is perfect. Jesus fled idolatry. Jesus helps us to trust God. And it's not a one-time thing, because Jesus also gave us something else. Jesus now gives us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And that Holy Spirit is an idol detector. When I was young... For one of my birthdays, I was probably 10 or so. I wanted, I had big dreams. 
I wanted a metal detector because I knew there was gold in them their hills. I knew that there was gold behind my parents' house, and I was going to find it. And so, sure enough, for Christmas, I got a metal detector. And I went out with that metal detector, and I, you know how it goes, and I just looked around for it, and I never heard that coveted beep, beep, beep. Never heard it. There may be gold behind my parents' house, but I never found it. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. He is the, the, the idol detector. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he reveals to us areas that may not be idols yet, but have the, have the temptation to turn into idols. The Holy Spirit is going to place his divine finger on our heart and say, this is an area you have turned into an idol. This is an area that must be destroyed. The Holy Spirit does this for us and enables us to keep the first commandment. This Holy Spirit gives us the power and the authority to help us live in such a way that pleases God. And how do we do that? We do that by, uh, by taking our idols and going on a search and destroy mission with them on a daily basis. We find our idols and we remove them. And we find the root of those idols and we deal with them. And we find more idols and we deal with them until we go to the throne room of Jesus and we no longer have to fight idols. This is the Christian walk. That we deal with our idols and we worship the one true God. We worship him because he is worthy of worship. And so the question for us is what does this have to do with us on Monday morning? What does this have to do with us tomorrow? What about Tuesday? What about Wednesday? How, how can you and I, how can we live this first commandment this week? Well, the first thing that we can do is we can be reminded by the law of God that if you are an idol worshiper, you will not taste the joys of heaven. If you have never trusted in Jesus, then you are what the Bible calls a sinner, a rebel of the throne of God. And no sinner will enjoy the pleasures and the benefits of Jesus. And so the Bible commands us based on just the first commandment. You must repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's the first thing that we can do. But if we have done that, and I pray that you have, we have done that, and we're not out of the clear yet. Because the first commandment reminds us that we ought to worship God as He deserves. Do you worship God as He deserves? None of us can say that we perfectly worship Him as we deserve. But we are reminded that this is, a, this is a striving that we ought to keep up. And so we come on Sundays. We come and gather with the people of God. And we seek to, to remind ourselves who we're worshiping. We're worshiping a mighty God who loves us. And we are reminded that worship isn't, isn't confined to a 30-minute, an hour service on Sunday mornings. No, this worship of this, of this almighty God, it, it extends to the rest of the week. That we wake up daily seeking to worship God in our actions. We worship Him on how we love our neighbor. We worship Him on how we do our job. There is nothing unholy about the jobs that you are doing. God has given them to you. He has called them to you. And He wants you to do them to your best ability to worship Him. And so, we ask ourselves, are we worshiping God as we ought? And then we have to ask ourselves, are we leading our friends and family to worship God? If you could not talk, if your voice was taken away, taken away tomorrow, would people examine your life know that you worship the one true God? Or, or would your children say, I love daddy, but he loved money. Or I love mama, but, but she, she cared more about her reputation. That was her true God. That was what made her click. May it never be said of us 
May our children grow up and look to mama and daddy and grandfather and grandmother and look at them and say, they love Jesus above all else. They sinned. They were not perfect, but they loved Jesus. And they put to death the things in their life that rivaled the throne of Jesus. Today, we are called by God through his word to put to death those idols in our life and to seek to worship him alone. Will you worship the one true God with me? Will you kill your idols? Will you trust in him? Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would bless your word. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as we seek to worship you above all else. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.